UFOs, Bigfoot, paranormal input. Go ahead now, get mystical. Mystery and magical. UFOs, not typical. Bigfoot, not typical. You ask me why I'm skeptical. I say questions are questionable. Is the truth alien to you? Alien to get my message through. Aliens might message you. Aliens are sliding through. The wild signal we're plotting to. Algorithms they find is true. Typical. Skeptic. Shut Got no time for no petty turns, pandemic, a pandemic turn, horror still in Amityville, Bayonet in Gettysburg, Mothman, TNT, Factory, Red Eyes, Blue Dog Man, Howling in the Street, I'm typically skeptic of what I see, Voodoo Hoodoo in New Orleans, Thunderbird, Swamp Thing, is it real, I was wondering, typical, skeptic, show, typical, skeptic, show. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Typical Skeptic Podcast. Tonight's going to be a really fun show. It's going to be like almost like a Halloween type themed episode. We're going to be getting into Mothman, John, the work of John Keel, injured coal, UFO sightings, uh, other cryptids, post-traumatic growth of the Silver Bridge collapse, which was tied into the Mothman event, uh, the, maybe the bigger conspiracy tied into it, paranormal stories. Um, the relationship that the, my two guests have with Point Pleasant is amazing. And who I'm referring to is Bill and Jackie Kousalis. Uh Bill uh, Kousalis, PhD, has a lifelong interest in the paranormal, which began in the late 70s with the original Project UFO series that aired on Sunday Night Television. In 2003, he was introduced to the Mothman Prophecies movie, and it changed his life. Since then, he has read nearly all of John Keel's research, as well as the works of other similar authors, including Gray Barker and Andy Colvin. Bill holds a doctorate in psychology with a focus set on post-traumatic growth. Jess, uh, Jacqueline Casulis is a retired USPS postmaster and current business owner slash operator. She specializes in research, data analytics, and connecting the dots between intuition, perception, and reality. And their book is called Bridging the Tragedy, Silver Linings in the Mysterious Ohio River Valley. And I want to give them a big warm welcome to the show. Bill, Jackie, thank you for coming back on. How are you? Good, thank you. Good, Robert. How are you I'm 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 great. I love this time of year. This is my favorite time of year. It's really when we can dig into like some of these paranormal subjects and it almost feels good. It's like a feeling of excitement in the air, right? It really is. With yeah. the leaves falling and it's getting a little darker, a little earlier, a little more mysterious, more quickly. Yeah, it's fun. It's definitely my favorite time of the year, you know, and the, the Halloween aspect just ties in. But this Mothman case, it's so intriguing when we look at it from the beginning, like I guess we start off with the work of John Keel, right? Uh, he's the, the the main figure that was tied into this case. Well, I would say that if it were not for John Keel, the legend of Mothman would not be anything like it is today, if it even existed. He was absolutely amazing in his research and his writing. He did a great job of embracing the community of Point Pleasant. People opened up to him, and he did a fantastic job of reporting on the things that were happening back then. Yeah, and like, what what was happening? I, I, what, well, first of all, like, what, 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 how would you describe Keel's work, like, or his research? Keel was really very exhaustive in the way he approached cases. He started out as a ufologist, so what he was originally commissioned to do was to do the definitive UFO article for Playboy magazine. And as he dug his heels in and got to working on that back in the mid '60s. He kept researching and writing and reporting. And before you knew it, he had so much work that it was more than what the article was going to be, uh, 
he couldn't publish it. It was just too big. So he and Playboy parted ways. And what he ended up doing was taking that research and turning it into his first UFO book, which was called, it was called uh, Operation Trojan Horse. And what's really interesting about that book is that <clears throat> Keel, although he never even had a formal education, I, I want to say, I don't believe he even finished high school. He approached things like a, a scientist. He looked at both qualitative aspects of interviewing people and also quantitative, meaning statistics. So a lot of people thought that he had a doctorate in something or other because of the way that he wrote and researched. He just, he did a fantastic job when he covered different topics. And what would you say his overall like like findings were on the phenomena? Like what did he think was going on if you, if you had to guess? Well, when he went to Point Pleasant, he was kind of out on a different case. He was actually in West Virginia and there was a, a story about this guy who had a cat and it, he called it Thomas the Winged Cat. And apparently he went to go report on this cat. But by the time he got a hold of this kid, the cat had lost its wings. So he lost, you know, his source of income and notoriety and what have you. But that was in West Virginia. So he was relatively close to Point Pleasant when this happened. And interestingly enough, uh, he got wind of what was happening in Point Pleasant, which was there were all kinds of UFO sightings. There were reports of uh, this flying creature with red eyes. It was very dark in color. Some people called it brown. Some called it black. Some called it gray. But uh, they referred to it mostly as the big bird. Once the media got a hold of it, though, they named it Mothman. And that was probably because of the Batman TV series that was popular at the time. Now, what, what people, that's, that's so interesting, by the way. Now, what people might not understand is how the, pro, you guys could talk about how the prophecies tie in and what they were. Like, what were, what, like where does that come in here and, and how does that tie into everything? I'm glad you brought that up because interestingly enough, for the most part, when the Mothman legend is spoken of today, it's very seldom even talked about. The prophetic aspect of things, which I think is probably the most interesting part of the entire case was about two thirds to three quarters of the way through the book, The Mothman Prophecies, Keel starts talking about his relationship with a lady by the name of Jay Perro. Now, Jay Perro was actually a paranormal radio show host, even before Art Bell was on Coast to Coast back in the 60s. She was on WBAB, which was in Babylon, New York. And she talked to, in Keel's words, she talked to all kinds of kooks and crackpots people who were into UFOs back in the in the 60s before it was even really a thing. I wonder if and, we could get some of those shows today. Did you ever look and see if they're available? I haven't I haven't been able to locate any of Jay Perro's shows, but she was kind of a contemporary of Long John Neville, and I know his work is out there. That can still be located, but I've not heard of anybody who's found Jay Perro's recordings. Yeah, I think Jimmy Church was talking about uh, Long John Neville. He said he was like before Art Bell or something like that. Like, I, I, I didn't, I, I thought Art Bell was the first, you know, like, I, I always thought that Art Bell was like the, the epitome when it came to paranormal. But I think he was because the notoriety that Art got, you know what I mean? It was, it was a different kind of thing. It was, it was like the perfect time. It was like the, the start of the, it was, he was going early and then he went like into the start of the internet. Right. You know what I mean? So it's almost like he art hit at the exact right time for this. You think? He, he, he really did. You know, I discovered Art Bell back in the 1990s when I was working on my bachelor's degree and tossing Chicago tribunes out of my car in the middle of the night. I turned on WLS radio and listened to this guy talking about aliens, UFOs, uh, all kinds of crazy things. He even had a 
he had a line that people would call in on and they would identify themselves as the Antichrist. He called it the Antichrist hotline. I mean, I, yeah, it was hilarious. You'd hear these people call up and talk all kinds of craziness. And I, I got so much so much enjoyment out of that. It was a lot of fun listening to him back in the 90s. It, it was because like it was a special thing because it was so special to be able to turn on your radio. And like if you could get it, it was like, you know, because here in Pittsburgh, it was on a FM station, but it was hard to get. So like when it would come on, I would always get so excited because it felt like it's not like now where you can just go on the Internet and get any podcast you want. And like if I was, for example, I was doing research on you today. So I just look up your name. Boom, there's a podcast with you. And it's like it's easy. People don't realize how hard it was back in the day to like try to like tune into radio. Sometimes it didn't work. Right. You had to line up your schedule just so it's it, like with TV shows. You, if you wanted to watch your favorite TV show, you had to be parked in front of the television and you had to watch all the commercials as they went by too, or use the bathroom when that was happening. Yeah. It was totally different time back then than it is now where we have all this information at our fingertips. I know it's amazing. It really is to see. It's a really amazing to see the change, but back to the prophecies. Cause I think this is really interesting. So you said, uh, he was in, uh, Kiel was in touch with Jay Perro, right? Yes. Kiel was introduced to Jay Perro by a guy by the name of Jim Mosley, who Jim Mosley was a contemporary of Kiel's, but he was kind of a character along the lines of the way Gray Barker was a character. The two of them were accused of doing a lot of hoaxing. So when Mosley introduced Keel to Jay Perro, I mean, she was definitely out there in left field compared to the most of the rest of the people that Keel interviewed. And as you can imagine, that's a stretch because this field is filled with all kinds of folks that are a little bit out there in left field, no question. But Jay Perro was, she would contact and she would speak with John Keel on the telephone. Most of their relationship was via telephone calls. And she would be talking to Keel about these people who were giving her this information and all of a sudden she'd say, well, you know, this guy standing right next to me, let me hand the phone to him. And if you've seen the TV or the, the movie, uh, The Mothman Prophecies, when Indrid Cold is allegedly on the phone talking to John Klein, that's inspired by The Mothman Prophecies when Jay Perro would be on the phone with John Keel and all of a sudden she'd hand the phone to this alien guy who at least introduced himself as an alien. He went by the name Apol, A-P-O-L. He claimed to be from a different world, and he would sometimes even be uh, channeled through Jay Perrow as she was talking to Keel on the phone, and he gave Keel all kinds of different prophecies, such as the Martin Luther King assassination, that was going to happen. Keel tried to get a hold of King's people, but he wasn't successful in doing that. Bobby Kennedy was another one that Keel was warned about through this Apoll character and some of his compadres, but of course, he wasn't able to stop that either, but he received all kinds of prophetic information, which is where the prophecies part of the Mothman story comes in. And and what what does that say? Like, what were some of the prophecies? Like, do, do, I mean, like, and, and but, but how does it tie to the Mothman? Does it, is it, does it have a synchronicity? It was happening in the same time frame. So John Keel was from New York City. And as he was reporting in West Virginia on Mothman, he would occasionally go back to his apartment in New York City. And when he would arrive in New York City, he'd get contacted by Jay Perro and these other entities. And it's almost like they were conspiring to keep him away from Point Pleasant. There was a lot of strangeness that was going on in an area called Mount Misery, which is really actually like 10 miles located away from where the Amityville Horror took place. So that entire stretch right there is haunted, for lack of a better way of putting it. But a lot of what was happening there was that this was during the same time frame as what was happening in Point Pleasant with the 
UFOs, the Mothman, the Men in Black, and all that type of activity. I, I have a question. How much do you think, and I'd love to hear your response to this, Jackie, like how much do you guys think government involvement is in in, in this whole like paranormal Point Pleasant, or do you think it's all supernatural? I think that there was government involvement because when we spoke with Carolyn Harris, who's now deceased, she was the owner of the Mothman Diner, and she also started the Mothman Festival with Jeff Wamsley. Um, she's when we when I asked her about the Men in Black, I asked her if she had seen any of them, and she said she saw them, yes. And there were two types, and she referred to some of them as the government men, and the other ones were from somewhere else. Wow. So. So I know that from, from her telling me that, which I suspected it anyway, because it was total chaos going on then, that the government was involved, um, maybe because there were so many UFOs, you know, and they were watching that. And then there's a strange creature and they're trying to figure out what it is. Um, and I think, I think the government's got their hand in a lot of things, trying to keep things quiet. I think so too. What do you think, Bill? Well, I was thinking as Jackie was talking about Carolyn Harris that when we when we did the interviews for our book, we interviewed a gentleman by the name of Denny Bellamy. Now, Denny's been in about 60 different Mothman and Point Pleasant type uh, documentaries. And Denny said that he thought one of the reasons that they were in town, that the men in black were in town, is because in West Virginia, we grow good pot. <laughs> he literally <laughs> said that, you know, there was that. But then also going back into the 1940s in the TNT area, that was a place that was very secretive, which is where Mothman was sighted in the 60s originally and several times afterwards, um, that that was an area where TNT was being manufactured for the World War II effort. So after the sightings began taking place back in the 60s, government men showed up again and they shut down that whole area and they wouldn't let people in. So maybe with what was going on with Mothman sightings, the UFO sightings, the government wanted to kind of hush things down. Whenever men in black are around, they're usually sent to silence people who have witnessed things. And there's always that aspect to entertain as well. I originally had thought that because Wright-Patterson Air Force Base was so close to Point Pleasant, I originally had thought that maybe maybe Mothman was like some type of aircraft or flying suit. And it was actually a man that was, you know, doing flying um, over the Ohio River and West Virginia's dark. Denny Bellamy told us that when you go fly over West Virginia, you don't see anything. It is dark. So my first original thought years ago, when I heard about Mothman, I'm trying to rationalize it in my head, make it, make it a logical reason, reasoning for me. And I thought that the government was just, you know, had some type of prototype that they were flying, you know, a man in a suit. Um, but it it wasn't long, and I and I was like, no. After after going to Point Pleasant and learning more, I, I decided that that wasn't the case. But I was going to say, still, what do you guys think that Mothman is? Is he a, a, a angel, a harbinger of death, a uh, government research project, a supernatural entity, all the above? You know, it could be any one of those, Robert. Um, I've really kind of followed Keel and Andy Colvin's research very closely. And the way that they lean primarily is that Mothman was a Garuda or a Thunderbird in the Western Native American tradition. And really those entities, I mean, the Garuda is basically the equivalent of the Thunderbird. I'm sure there's some cultural differences, but the bottom line is that um, the Thunderbird sits at the top of the totem pole, which is above where humanity is. And that means that it sees things from a different perspective than we do. It could be angelic in nature. That could be one way to define it by, you know, religious paradigms. 
but it seems to me that it's some kind of a transmogrification of energy, meaning that it kind of comes in at a different frequency than we're at, you know, and that's another thing that Keel talked about with his super spectrum theory, that maybe we're operating on one, you know, one frequency level or one radio station, for lack of a better way of putting it. And maybe this Mothman energy is at a different station. And sometimes those stations blur depending upon the conditions. Uh, but I see it as some type of a, an energy source. So some type of an energy or light type being spiritual in nature that's really more angelic and positive, you know, at worst case scenario, neutral, but certainly not an evil entity. And why do you think it showed up or made its presence? Do, do you have any speculation on that? So in the people that we've talked to in the Point Pleasant area, most of them saw it more of as entertainment or as some type of a harbinger. Some of them didn't believe in it at all. Uh, my thought was that, you know, with it being sighted in the TNT area in the first place, that that was a place where there was a lot of negative energy being manufactured. I mean, if you think about the, the, what was happening there is the bombs were being manufactured for Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That TNT area was shut down right after that, you know, and the way that Andy looks at it is he he calls it like it's some type of a first responder or crime fighter, like it shows up to kind of make people aware that there's something wrong going on here. And even though it was 20, 25 years after the, the thing was shut down in the TNT area with the munitions factory, there was still, still some residual energy left over also that entire area where that manufacturing facility was, was three different Native American burial grounds. So here you have burial grounds of natives for all intents and purposes being desecrated and walked upon by machinery for war. So who knows if maybe this is something that's showing up and saying, no, this isn't cool. You guys need to be aware this isn't cool and I'm going to scare you half to death and get your attention somehow. So then if that's the case, then Mothman literally could have been the one that was doing the prophesying to John Keel through J.P. Peril. Could have been. Because that sounds like he there was prophecy there. And there were more warnings that were taking place as well, too. So, yeah, if you follow Jackie's thought process there and dovetail that with what was happening at the TNT area compared to the entire area of Point Pleasant, and then with what's happening with these different warnings coming from Jay Perro. I mean, it's all prophetic of bad things that are coming. And ultimately, the bridge did collapse in Point Pleasant. That was the big disaster that happened there. I wanted to ask you about that. Like, but, but first, tell me if you guys could um, tell me what drew you to Point Pleasant. Obviously, your love for Mothman, but like, you've probably felt like since you wrote this book on the Silver Bridge, you when you went there, you probably felt like you had a bigger mission, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, Mothman took us to Point Pleasant, but it says like on the back of the cover, our quote, and this is what we tell everybody, the legend of Mothman brought us to town, but the people of Point Pleasant keep us coming back. And um, we just make friends every time we go there. So what we were seeing as we were going um, to Point Pleasant is, well, we never attended a Mothman festival because Bill doesn't like crowds. Um, so we would just go to Point Pleasant and we'd meet people and, you know, Jeff Wamsley's become a friend of ours. And Carolyn was like, she was like family from the get go and, you know, doing this project, we've made tons more friends. Um, but I lost my train of thought completely. Um, well, basically, <laughs> yeah, to answer your question, Mothman brought us to town. I, I had researched Mothman on my own for 15 years before we even went 
to Point Pleasant. And Jackie was interested too, not to the same level that I was, but she was into it because she was fascinated by it. And she's had paranormal experiences throughout her lifetime. So when we arrived in Point Pleasant and met Carolyn and basically fell in love with her, like she was a long lost aunt or grandmother type figure to us, really not really grandmother, but like a parent. Um, we just continued to keep going back. And ultimately we decided we were going to contact Carolyn. She'd given us her phone numbers. You know, a few months later, we were going to call her. And I told Jackie on Christmas Eve, I wanted to call Carolyn and see if I could talk to her and see if I could tell her story because Carolyn had lost a son in the Silver Bridge disaster. Her two-year-old little boy, Timmy, was on the bridge when the bridge collapsed. So she lost him as well as her first husband. And as a result of that, uh, I told Jackie, let's do this. She agreed, let's contact Carolyn after the holidays. The very next day, guy that we met with Carolyn, a guy by the name of Mark Griffith, who was in our book, sent us a message on Facebook, said, hey guys, Carolyn had a heart attack. And the very next day, Carolyn died. So we never had a chance to talk to Carolyn again. But we did end up going back to Point Pleasant the following summer. I had a residency in the D.C. area. We coordinated dinner with Jeff. And really, that was the beginning of building more friendships and getting to know more people in Point Pleasant. And like Jackie said, we just kept making more friends and really fell in love with the area. So the reason, the actual reason for the book, <laughs> my, my got my, my thought process back. Um, when Bill did his dissertation, he did it on post-traumatic growth, um, men in their 30s and 40s that went through a divorce and how they grew from that. Instead of having all of the stress and just living with that the rest of our life, everything's horrible, terrible, you know, um, how do you how do you improve your life? How do you grow from that? So what we noticed with Point Pleasant after the Mothman Festival started, it kept getting bigger and bigger. And we'd go to Point Pleasant and there'd be one more store popping up and another store popping up and people were coming around and being more friendly. So um, seeing that, we wanted to know how the people and the town made it through all of the 60s stuff. The town literally died and then it came back to life. And how did this happen? So that's kind of how the project for the book started. That's cool. And uh, well, before we get into the book, I wanted to come, one thing we didn't cover about the paranormal events was injured Cole. Um, what are your thoughts on what he was or what it was? Was it an alien? Was it a messenger from beyond, do you think? Or I've heard all kinds of different speculations on that. Maybe he was a man in black. Maybe he was a government agent, a spook. Um, maybe he really was from a different planet. Who knows? But the long and short of it was there was a gentleman by the name of Woody Derenberger, and Woody Derenberger was driving home from work. Uh, he worked in the Parkersburg area, which is about 60 miles from Point Pleasant. And as he was driving home in his equipment van, some somebody went to go past him, and he noticed that it wasn't a car that was passing him. It was some type of a craft that flew above him and then stopped in the road ahead of him. And the way Woody described this craft was it looked like an old-fashioned tea kettle, like tilted on its side which is bizarre enough in and of itself. But then this being steps out of the craft and he's got hair slicked back, slicked back and he has his arms underneath, his hands underneath his armpits and he starts looking towards Woody and he begins communicating with him telepathically. So as he's talking to Woody, he tells Woody, hey, I'm from a plant or I'm from a town or a, a country that's much less powerful than yours. And I'm here not to cause you harm, but I'm a searcher. I'm just here to check things out basically. And they interacted a little bit, and then after a few minutes, this injured cold character got back into his tea kettle and took off again, and the legend of injured cold started from there. Now, there were other sightings within the area also of people who described a similar craft, and so it wasn't just Woody who had encountered this injured cold fellow. 
Allegedly, according to Woody Derenberger and others, Indrid Cold came back in his spaceship, would take Woody to different places, one of them being his home planet of Landulos, but also to different countries you know, on the planet Earth. And he continued this relationship with Indrid Cold for the next several years. That's amazing. And you said other people had sightings of Indrid Cold as well? There were a couple of other folks that had also testified to the fact that they had seen a craft that was in the same road that Woody did around the same time as he did. There was another report later on mentioned in the Mothman Prophecies book of another individual who said that he had a similar experience, but that was later found to be a hoax. There was one in Ripley, too, a person that lived in Ripley, which is not far from Point Pleasant at all. This is, what, 20 minutes? Is that the Tad Jones episode? I think it I is. I think it is, yeah. Yeah, Tad yeah. Jones was the guy who also cited a, a being, a uh, paranormal being or alien or what have you. I think Andy Colvin wrote about that, and Andy's in our book, too, and he um th he thinks that Indra Cold was CIA. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. What did, why does he say that? Does he do you guys know? What, what does he think that the CIA had a bigger mission in town? Do you think it was tied to the bridge? Is, is that a conspiracy there? So, and Andy is uh, first and foremost, before he was uh, a Mothman author and a paranormal author, he spent a ton of time in uh, what we call conspiracy theory research. And so he was involved with the, both of those things around the same time. But Andy was an original Mothman witness from his home in Mound, West Virginia, which is now North Charleston. He had sighted Mothman with his mom and dad when they were in the car going to a bowling alley one night. So as he saw this, you know, this entity, basically he became really, really, really inspired by Mothman. He and his friends built a shrine to Mothman. And at that point, they started having encounters with like little green men and disembodied voices. And oh. this area that he called the Mothman Shrine, he and his friend Tommy walked into this and they both got a vision of the 2001 uh, attack on the Twin Towers. So what? that was part of his whole yeah. theory as well. When, yeah. they, were, when they were boys. Yes. Yeah, when absolutely. They were boys. Oh, my absolutely. God. That's, After they, have you ever even told that on a podcast? Because that's amazing information. Like, yeah. I, Andy probably has. I don't think that we ever have. It was, but yeah. It was right after him and Tommy built the Shrine to Mothman. Mm -hmm. He touched Tommy's arm in the lane where Harriet, who's also in our book, saw a UFO. And he and Tommy got the vision. But to answer your question as to why we kind of went off on a segue there. <laughs> That's to, okay. That's it's some fun. crazy stuff. Though. Yeah, <laughs> it, it really is. It's really fun to talk about. But to answer your question, Andy, basically, his dad worked for Union Carbide, which was a huge employer in the region back in the 60s. And um, he was kind of known as a little bit of an organizer. He was a union guy and so on and so forth. So the higher ups kind of saw him as a troublemaker. Andy's dad mysteriously died of cancer. And it was after he had sat in his vehicle on top of uh, like what he thought was like a spring that had popped through the front seat, but he developed cancer in his leg and it ended up taking his life. Now, Andy to this day believes, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but if I remember correctly, that this was like some type of, some type of cancer that was given to him by some of these corporate executives or conspiratorial type things. And that Indrid Cold may have possibly been involved with the assassination of his father. There were a lot of other weird things happening to people that worked at Union Carbide, and that's behind um, Andy's thought process, I think. That's so strange. Like, it, it, there's so much stuff tied into this one area. It's so wild. Like, what was the, the paranormal and conspiratorial aspect is amazing. Now, let me ask you this. It seems like you found some, like, actual, like, 
structural problems with the bridge and it wasn't up, up to par. So there might not be as much of a conspiratorial angle when we look at like this collapse of the bridge, correct? Like that one could have been more like um, explained through natural causes. Yeah, the breakdown, um, Ibar 13, number 13, had a hairline fracture in it and caused it to just crack and go down. Because of the weight on the bridge, there was too much weight. The, built, the bridge was built in the 19, 1920. Mm -hmm. And um, when the traffic was heavy because of semis and the big steel cars that they had back then and the traffic from the holidays, because it was December 15th, um, both stoplights on, on the ends of the bridge were both red. So all the cars were just like sitting ducks. And literally Linda Lane, who is in our book also, was on the bridge a couple of days before that with a friend. And she said that her friend heard a loud noise. And she said, the bridge is going to fall down. And Linda said, oh, you're crazy. I didn't hear that. But that's exactly what happened a few days later. Oh, my God. Wow. And, and I was going to ask you this, like the, the post-traumatic growth from the well. Did anybody survive the bridge crash? Were there, were there people to survive it that talked about it? There were a handful of survivors. We did not meet any of them, though. Um, the people that we interviewed were either people who were secondhand or thirdhand experiencers. One of the gentlemen that we interviewed is a guy by the name of Jimmy Wedge. And Jimmy Wedge was the high school varsity basketball coach the night the bridge collapsed. And he knew the bridge was down, but he knew that he had a, a duty to those kids to to basically coach them through that game. He knew his mom was coming to the game. What he didn't know is his dad had flown in from Kansas City where he worked as an executive, picked up mom, and they were going to surprise him at the game for his debut, and they were on the bridge when it collapsed, and they were killed. Oh, my God, that's so horrible. Here, here's something that you might find interesting. This was not a survivor, but it's in the interview with Susan Sayer in the book. She and her daughter, Brittany, go to some... West Virginia Fair. I can't remember. It's all it's all in the book. Um, they ran into a lady that believes that she was on the bridge when it went down, and she was born, you know, several days after the bridge or something. She believes that her soul was a, was one of the victims of the bridge collapse. So it was like a past life. Like she believes yes. she has a past life on this yeah. bridge collapse. She she was reincarnated. Yes. Yeah, Susan, when we interviewed Susan, I think she was the second interviewee for our book. Uh, when we talked to her, she had mentioned this lady who had, uh, they had met her at the Cerrito Canova Fall Festival, like Autumn That's Festival. Yeah. And um, she didn't know what her name was, but her daughter Brittany did. So we did a little research and got, we talked to Brittany and asked her if she'd get this lady to connect with us on Facebook. We ended up connecting with her on Facebook and we did talk to her at one time or at least traded messages with her. And she basically told us that, you know, I wasn't, I, it wasn't that, that I was born the day the bridge collapsed or the day after I was born like six or nine months later, but I went to a psychic medium who told me that I was on the bridge when it collapsed and that I was reincarnated. She said, and to this day, I'm afraid of wet. I'm afraid of cold and I'm afraid of dark. Oh, wow. Wow. That's so scary. That's so, it's so freaky. Right. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's, oh, that gives me chills. But uh, let me ask you this, the post-traumatic growth, like did the city see actual growth from the, the collapse of the bridge in the long run? There was a ton of different things that we learned through our interviews. So what we did, Robert, is we, we selected 11 people, people that I had actually selected, people that I knew, 
And then people who came to us as a result of uh, the local newspaper editor posting an article on the front page of the Point Pleasant newspaper and the surrounding papers as well. Um, so we had 11 people come forward. We interviewed all of them and we designed a couple sets of questions. And the first one is we were looking for the dimensions of post-traumatic growth uh, that were experienced by the people who participated in the study from the bridge collapse. And then we had a second set for Mothman and related paranormal phenomena. So what we found was nine of the people spoke primarily about the bridge collapse. Two of them spoke primarily about their encountering of paranormal phenomena. What we encountered by applying scientific methodology, the same type of methodology I did for my doctoral dissertation, was that 15 different dimensions of post-traumatic growth arose in the community and in the people who had dealt with this, uh, both on the paranormal side and on the bridge collapse side. And we're happy to share those with you if you'd like to hear them. Oh yeah, I'd love to. That sounds so interesting. So what we did, Robert, and I'm turning to the book right now because I don't have this memorized, but after applying the methodology we did, there were literally almost 2,300 different codes or meaning units that we pulled out from all the interviews and after filtering them down into different categories and subcategories, we came up with 15 different things. And I'll just give you a few of them. One of them was a newfound appreciation for life. One of them was entrepreneurialism. Another one was memorial. There was perseverance. There was perspective taking, responsibility, and spiritual development, among others. So it shows how a tragedy can actually turn into a positive in this case. And that was the goal, you know, and I think a lot of this, you asked us earlier, what kind of brought us to Point Pleasant? Why did we get so connected to the community? But I think it had to do with that, that first meeting that we had with Carolyn Harris. Carolyn was so kind to us. We felt like she was a relative within the first 10 minutes we met her. We went back to her restaurant every single day we were in Point Pleasant that year. And um, we just felt so good about being around her. And, but we learned that she'd lost her child. And for anybody who's ever lost a child, I haven't, thankfully. It's got to be one of the worst things we can deal with in life. She still found a way to put a smile on her face. She still found a way to give back to people in the community, to neighbors in the community. Jeff Wamsley told us, hey, you know, if people would show up and they needed to have a meal at the restaurant and didn't have money to pay for it, she said, come back when you have the money to pay for it. And that was just one of the things that really inspired us. And once we got more and more connected to the community, we found out that, yes, Carolyn was a wonderful example of this growth that came after tragedy, but there were others as well. And we wanted to learn about them and we wanted to tell their story. I like that. That's so interesting. And but it seems like there's so much like paranormal stuff tied to this too. I mean, it, it seems like it has a little bit of everything, right? When, I, when we're referring to the paranormal in this case, like it's everything from cryptids to UFOs to men in black to, I mean, it runs the whole gamut of the paranormal. Yeah, I like to refer to it as the Skinwalker Ranch of the 1960s because it, it like, just like, yeah, of the East, of the East. Yeah, it's the paranormal mecca of the East, no question. But like Skinwalker Ranch, for folks who are familiar with that, you've got all kinds of different phenomena presenting at the same time. And in Point Pleasant, we have the Mothman, we have the Men in Black, we have the UFOs, the, the colored lights in the skies that nobody could describe, cattle mutilations, disembodied voices, pol poltergeist activity, um, just crazy, crazy stuff. One thing we never covered, Bill, was the disembodied voices in the in the spirit activity. Like, did did you did you talk to people that experienced that as well? I may have stretched that a little bit with disembodied voices. What I was referring to <laughs> was uh, what happened with um, 
Apoll and Agar, who were the two entities that were basically channeled through Jay Perro to John Keel. But there were other people as well that were having prophetic visions. That's one thing that I didn't mention. Um, the lady Mary Heyer, who was the Athens, Ohio messenger correspondent in Point Pleasant, she teamed up with John Keel and they investigated all these different sightings and UFOs and things like this. And one of the things that she had experienced was she woke up from a dream shortly before the bridge collapsed and she had visions in her dream of presence floating on the water. And that was something that a lot of the people who we interviewed for the story told us was that, you know, one of the visuals they had was of seeing all these Christmas presents floating on the water after the bridge went down and these people passed away. Yeah. Oh, that's so sad. That's so sad. Um, was Mothman spotted near the bridge around the collapse or going up to it? We were told Mothman was spotted on the bridge the hours before the bridge went down, but not anyone that we interviewed knew that for sure yeah because it, it was but uh, it's because it would be like speculating right because it's we can't depend on, it's all all the paranormals like that it's like it's so hard to get like real uh, you know like mm -hmm. um what i wanted to ask you guys was also you guys had some paranormal stuff too like i know jackie last time we talked there i remember you being rather psychic right you're pretty psychic yeah fairly so yeah when did that start? I think I think I've had it all my life. Just did not put a finger on it. Um, I remember being a little kid and asking my mom what ESP was. I heard it somewhere on TV or something. I don't know. And she told me extrasensory perception. And I'm like, okay, well, what the heck does that mean? <laughs> and then she started talking about, you know, the five senses and it's the sixth sense that you just know things. And that's that's basically what I've had for for all for as long as I can remember. I just have this knowing. I just know things, and I don't know how I know them. That, that that's so interesting. I, I knew it seems like the more I do this research, the more like my psychic abilities start to kick in. It seems mm -hmm. like so. I'm like, I, I wondered if you guys had the same thing, or it's like a, a, a consciousness expansion as well. Did, did you feel that like when you research this kind of stuff? I think I think because we're doing the research, and because you know we're getting more involved with this type of the community, the community with um, UFOs and paranormal and stuff that I'm more aware of it. Um, before I would just think like, you know, like, and I'm sure this happens to a lot of people, but I would literally back when you dialed phones would pick up the phone to call my sister or my mom and they'd be on the phone already. Cause they picked up the phone to call me at the same time. I know that, that happens a lot, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I had that happen just yesterday. Is it, isn't it so weird? It's, it's like, it's, it's so, uh, it, it's, it, it makes you think that we have this extra, like, it's so weird as us as humans, like we're, 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 we're humans. They say we're, we're derived from chimps, which I don't agree with, but like, I think we're something more special. I think we, we have like these psychic abilities. Like even when like, uh, you can send someone behind you in the store, they call that your toroidal field. Like you just know someone's coming up from behind you, not even in a store or anywhere, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, it's like, we can have out of body experiences. We can have near death experiences. Like we can remote view. It's like, we have, do you think that's kind of what makes us special our psychic abilities yeah i think i think that people that can that have figured out a way to develop it yeah but i think we all have the ability um yeah i don't know one, one of the things that we want to do for our next project robert is that now that this book is out and up on, on amazon and actually steve ward if you know who that is who works for the mothman museum now posted 
a stack of our books at the Mothman Museum. They're, they're for sale there now, which is just, it's really cool. It's, it's super cool. fun to see that. But um, we're looking at doing some other projects. And one of them is the, the correlations between, you know, psychic phenomena, paranormal phenomena, and abuse that happens to us in our lives. I mean, let's say that, you know, maybe I suffered physical abuse, or there's somebody who's had sexual abuse, or whatever it might be. But those have been told to me that I've heard over the years that it's kind of, it opens up a door to the paranormal when people go through that type of physical trauma. So we want to look for the, the correlations between those things and then also find out how people grow past them so we can take that experience of other individuals who have had things happen that they certainly didn't want to have happen, but how did they overcome them and what good has come from that as well too. So we're looking at those things for our next thing. We're looking to kick off really next year. You know what? I think that's so interesting. Like I never really thought about that. Like victims of like, abuse that that opened up some kind of like extrasensory perception or some kind of portal right up to the paranormal and i'm and I, that's that's a that's a great conclusion like do you find a lot of cases of that well i i think that there probably are i don't have a lot of people that come forward because abuse especially sexual abuse is really really personal and people don't talk about it a lot so there's that, but um, I, I did want to say something. I was just watching a YouTube video. I didn't get all the way through it. And it was talking about living in the fifth dimension, living in 5D instead of living in 3D. And I wonder if some of this is related to the people that have the ability to live in the 5D. I don't know because I've just started watching this program and it just like triggered something in my head. But if you are a person that's been sexually abused or physically abused, you have physical abuse in your home, you're always looking for that escape away from all of that. I used to wander the fields. I grew up in the country and I would just wander and hang out with the animals and the birds and play in the streams and that kind of stuff just to get away from my alcoholic dad screaming at my mom. And um, I'm, I'm thinking that maybe if the 5D is a place where we are happy and free, that maybe that's what all of this is about. Maybe this is where we go. Maybe we can see things and feel things and learn things and do things and know things by living in 5D rather than living in the 3D human form. Do you think like living in 5D could also be the afterlife as well? Do you think they're connected? Well, when I was listening to this program, they said that that's basically what it is, heaven on earth. Yeah. That so 5D is like heaven, so heaven on earth. And, then and that we all have the ability to do it, so... Do you believe that there's going to be a split? Like, do you think those of us, like us who are like researching this stuff and, and will go and like to the fifth dimension and not to just all the people that are kind of into this and that are feeling this consciousness expansion and then the rest of the population will remain on like a third dimension level? Well, I think that's already happening. I think people already are doing that because if that's the case, if, if the 5D is all of this paranormal stuff and there are so many people leaning in that direction, then that is a split because the 3D people are scared shitless, excuse my language. Yeah. You know, they don't they don't want to know about all this stuff because it scares them. And in my head, it's nothing to be afraid of. It's to be, you know, to to learn it, to find out what it's about. Yeah, I mean, know. if it's freeing and you don't have to have any fears and you can be happy, why not? You know, I never noticed that, that there is actually a split between the people who believe and the people who don't believe. It seems like we are living in two different worlds, right? Would you agree, Bill? You know, thank you for that. I think that that's a really good observation. And I would say probably for the, the second half of my life, I've been really in tune with things and open to, you know, what other, you know, mainstream materialistic society would call 
uh, things that are really out there, you know, but I've been really open to, you know, intuition. Not that I have the intuition that Jackie has, but I, I can feel things and I trust my gut today. I know in the past when I've gone against what my gut tells me eh, that I've ended up reaping, reaping things that I wouldn't call beneficial, <laughs> things that have not been good for me. But I think that absolutely there are a lot of us, I think, that are more spiritually inclined that believe there's a lot more behind the veil, so to speak, that we're not just in three dimensions, that what you see is what you get is not all that there really is. And I think that I've been a person that's probably believed that my entire life, but certainly the second half of my life. Yeah. Now, did you guys have some paranormal experiences as well, did you say? Yes. Um, well, we, we've had, I've had several throughout my life. Um, one of the, one of the things that I was sharing after we did our presentation at the Mothman Festival for projects, we were told people, you know, we need help. We need help figuring out what to do next. So when I was talking about the project with uh, physical and mental abuse and the connection between paranormal activity and the post-traumatic growth that can occur from that. Um, I was sharing the story when I was growing up that I was a little girl. I was really tiny and um, don't know how old I was, but I remember I would peek out from my covers and I would just be scared to death because there would be heads on my dresser. And I shared my bedroom with my sister, my middle sister. And it wasn't until a few years back when we were talking about things and I, I said something about the heads on the dresser and um, she said she saw them too. And mm. she didn't want me to know that as a kid because she didn't want me to be afraid. She was always trying to protect me as being my older sister. But what connected in my brain sometime after that was, okay, so there were heads on the dresser. I was scared to death. She was scared to death. While these heads were appearing on the dresser at night for both of us, um, my dad was an alcoholic. He'd come home and he was so abusive to my mom and my siblings. He didn't really bother me. I was the baby. So he kind of protected me from them. <laughs> and um, then also, as my sister and I talked, I found out that during this time period, she was being sexually molested by my uncle. So we had the physical abuse in my home and we had her sexual abuse, the person that shared the same room with me. So that that's one paranormal type of activity that I had as a very young child. And I've had more, you know, throughout life. And when we went to Charleston, Mound, West Virginia, for the first time, we were getting directions from Andy Colvin on Facebook Messenger. And it was like coming at us here and there. And we weren't really clear about what are we supposed to do? Because he's talking about it because he knows where he is. We don't know where the heck we are. You know, he's talking about a subdivision. And, and us as it's like, this is mountains. This isn't a subdivision. We live in Illinois where the you know, a subdivision is a bunch of houses that you can see all gathered together. Um, so we get to the end of the road when we came down the mountain. And I looked to the right and I said, um, oh, look, there's a church. And I took a picture of the church. I took the picture of the steeple. And we're trying to figure out which way we wanted to go. Long story short, later on, we do a spirit box session at that church. And it was one of the scariest spirit box sessions. And it was definitely the shortest one we've ever done before. But later on, found out that our car was facing a big open grassy area. And that big open grassy area was where the school stood that Charles Manson burnt down with kids in it. So, oh my God. yeah. So to me, that's paranormal because I was tuned into this church 
And that's where we decided to go ahead and do the spirit box session. And then we found out this information later. And it was a scary, it was, it was a scary one. We got out of there quick. <laughs> during, during the spirit box session. So right? dur during that session, um, was it just, did you have the, the headset no, on too? So we, we had a third person with us. She was in the back seat and she had the noise canceling headphones on and the blindfold. And she was doing, you know, we had the, the spirit box thing going with the radio stations scrolling through and that kind of thing. And we started asking questions. And the first thing that I noticed was that I was beginning to experience a tingling sensation, like at the crown of my head. And it was like an electrical sensation, not shocking, but just kind of tingling. Like when your leg falls asleep and you stand up and all of a sudden you can't walk on it. I felt that like at the top of my head. And I had a sensation that something was gently trying to pull me up or pull my consciousness up out of the top of my head. It was totally bizarre. Meanwhile, Jackie and our third person were both experiencing a similar thing, but that energy for them was centered more around the, the third eye area of, of their forehead. So that was happening as well. As we asked questions of our compadre, she was answering us back. And, and what were a couple of the things that we asked that, that actually were like dead on? Um, I, I don't know exactly what we asked her, but what we were watching, she was in the back seat. So we were turned around away from the grassy area and looking at her and the camera was on her. And there was a woman that came out of her house crossed the road, walked back onto her, to her, into her house. You could see her go past the window inside the house. But before that, you could see a man come up around the side of it. Well, while this is going on, she says, a man, a woman looking. And these, you know, it's going over like a couple minutes time. By the time she said looking, this woman came back out onto her porch and she's standing there with her hands on her hip, just staring at our vehicle. And um, so he says, should we get out of here? And I said, should we leave? was the question to the spirit box and we got undeniably and I'm like start the car <laughs> so we started rolling and then the girl in the back seat took her her headset off and took the blindfold off she's like what's going on we're like we're gonna get the hell out of here because we were just told that we need to leave undeniably so we took off yeah it was it was pretty creepy there's other things that led up to that it was probably a five minute spirit box session at at best and then I found out later on we were we were doing another uh zoom spirit box with um, Harriet, Harriet, who's in the book, she's highly psychic, and Andy Colvin and his son were on the Zoom meeting, and we were on Bird Mountain, and we were doing it, and um, when we were talking to Harriet and telling her about the sensation of feeling like we were being lifted up out of our heads, she said, don't let them take you, so it's like, okay, so this is where she saw the UFO, and she had missing time experience in that area growing up. Meanwhile, so, I started having chest pains, and I, I don't usually get chest pains, I'm in pretty good shape for an older fella, but um, I'm wondering what the heck's going on. Am I going to have a heart attack? And then Harriet says to the Zoom meeting, she says, is there a history of heart trouble in your family? <laughs> I mean, meaning, meaning somebody in the car. And we're like, oh my God, she's hitting home runs here again. And um, as we sat there, uh, Jackie and this other gal that was with us, both of them had the sensation that the, the truck was vibrating and that somebody had Not like- vibrating. Shaking. Shaking. It felt like somebody- had the front bumper and somebody had the back bumper and they were taking turns and like literally rocking it like like a extreme turbulence and I mean I ripped off my headphones at that point in my mask and I was done I was done Harriet said that's when people are trying to fight to get in they want airtime different spirits, spirits. different spirits were trying spirits. to come through yeah. for airtime and have you had that a lot with the spirits and what kind of spirit box do you guys use because I was showing you earlier I have this one here I have a a P 
SB7. I'll hold it up for the camera so they can see. That's you know what? Ours looks just exactly like that. Yeah, these are these are pretty cool. You just, I guess, you hit power and then you sweep. Do you keep your sweep going on continuously, or yeah, do you stop at a station? I let it sweep. Okay, I let it sweep. Yeah, um, I think it has to do with the paranormal activity in that area because we did one in Thatcher Woods in Chicagoland, Chicago area, and we both okay. So our friend and Bill both had on headphones blindfold headphones blindfolds and spirit boxes and one had it on am one had it on fm i was asking the questions and while, while, while we were out there trying to find another serpent mound there's literally a serpent mound out there so we were trying to get answers to where the serpent mound is and um when i'm asking questions like one of them would say part of the answer and the other one would finish the answer so it was really strange um and then during part of that, I realized that we were literally sitting in a circle of these big rocks that had symbols all over them. I mean, there's no way that there was just going to be rocks out in the middle of this forest preserve. It was just all woods. So I have no idea what we were sitting in. But I think that there was some type of ritual practices or something that had occurred there many times before we were there. Oh, wow. So, I mean, because you can go other places and get absolutely nothing. That's what I was going to say, because I'm, I'm, see, here's my problem. I think I have an entity in my house right now. I'm dealing with it at night, but then I can't pick up anything on the spirit box. Like, I, I don't know how to get rid of this entity. I thought, like, I didn't think it was real. Like, I didn't think it was actually real, like, until, like, things started happening, which it's, like, like kind of personal, but, like, it's, it's, it's getting a little bit creepy, like, you know, like, I'm being bothered at night by an entity and I don't really talk about it much, but have you guys ever had problems with entities? I, I've seen like black, uh, like masses. Yeah. But other than that and orbs, nothing, uh, nothing else that I know of. I've, I've been slamming doors and that kind of things. But. And I had two episodes when I was much younger, probably. It was before Jackie and I met, once in 1999, and then the other time, I think, in 2000 or 2001, in the house I lived in before we moved into the place we're in now. And I had the sensation that there was some type of a spiritual blackness. I didn't see it. I just felt it. And it was a very oppressive type of an energy, and it was palpable. I mean, I could I could sense it. I could feel it. Couldn't see it but I knew something was really, really, really wrong. And one of those times I was going through a, a very difficult, and I don't want to use traumatic because that's a little bit of a stretch of the term, but a very difficult emotional issue. And I was having difficulty sleeping. And this, this happened to me. I had the sensation that there were demons floating around in my apartment. It was scarier than hell. Uh, I didn't see them, but again, I felt it. And then later on, I felt a similar presence that, you know, the next year or maybe a year and a half later. But did you ever find out what it was or did you just kind of let it go because you're maybe not into it then at that point or i attribute most of it to my ex-wife wow she she was really left of center i mean in terms of very very uh disturbed and she was not like into the occult or ritualism in fact she was more what i would call fundamentalist christian in her beliefs but there was definitely something wrong with her as though she was maybe even possessed 
And I was going to say, do you think some, do you guys think some people can attract entities over like close to more than others? And like people can have this problem. It seems like people can get attachments. Yeah. So it, if you've been somewhere, you could have picked up an attachment. Yeah. I, 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 well, I was thinking because like, I, because I talk about this stuff all, all the time on my podcast, maybe when you, when you bring this stuff out in the air, like it opens up a portal, <laughs> you, yeah. you never know, right? No, you well, don't. I, I think, I think that to some degree we can kind of manifest those things that's just by I, being yeah, more, open, maybe right? more open to them. And that's one of the things, Robert, I mean, in the things that I've studied and, you know, my, my pursuits in terms of all this paranormal stuff, I'm really careful about it. I've never been into ritualism. I'm a very prayerful person. I read from Christian devotionals on a daily basis. So I'm, I feel like I'm protected from that stuff. But I also know that if I got too deeply into it, it's a lot more powerful than I am. And it could suck me in. Yeah, that's 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 really well said. I think that's really smart. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, do you want to guys want to tell this was awesome, by the way. Thank you for doing this. Do you guys want to tell them where they can get the book and um, where the, if you, and, and where they can find you at? we're both on facebook he's under bill kusulas k-o-u-s-o-u-l-a-s and i'm under jackie myers kusulas myers is m-y-e-r-s um and then kusulas we also have a facebook page phenomenology research professionals and our email is 2022prp at gmail.com and our book is available on Amazon, but if you don't use Amazon and you want a copy of the book, you can contact us on Facebook or by email and we can mail a copy to you. That's awesome. Well, thank you again for doing this. And uh, yeah, well, I, uh, until next time, we'll do it again. Okay. Thanks for having Thanks, us. Thanks, Robert. Good to see you. Yes. Good to see you again. Right. Have a good night. Thank you. You, you too.